Hey everyone, Sloan here, and as usual, I have a podcast episode that's worth a little bit of excitement on your part. Um, our guest in this episode, Ulf Erlandsson, is the founder of the Anthropocene Fixed Income Institute. That name, Anthropocene, refers to the present geological epoch, where human actions are clearly the dominant influence on climate and the environment. A portfolio manager turned activist, Ulf takes us inside some recent fixed income transactions that suggest some banks and some pensions are taking their commitments to ESG less than fully seriously. He then disaggregates the yield pickup that buyers of fossil fuel have been feasting on, or fossil fuel debt have been feasting on, explains how his activist ESG strategy benefits from fixed income trading's nature as a primary market, and talks about how pensions can profit from sustainable fixed income strategies. It's enough to give the lefty finance types that listen to this podcast the vapors, but in a totally safe way, we promise. Um, if you're looking forward to listening in, I have just one favor to ask. That, of course, is to leave some love for us in your podcast app store of choice. Um, you should also check out the ever more relevant blog on freemoneypodcast.com if the inspiration strikes you. That's all for now. Enjoy. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. This is where we bring you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you, in fact, desperately crave. You do. You even yeah. crave it when you're in 122 degrees in Phoenix, Arizona, I believe so. <laughs> yeah, I, my, my partner's family is from Phoenix, Arizona, and I was just out there visiting at the best time of the year. Did you get um, some record temperatures while you were there, catching some of the climate change? Uh, yeah. You know? Yeah, well, you know, it's a dry heat. Uh, That's right. <laughs> so it being 100 and, and, you know, 18 degrees basically every single day is, you know, it's not as bad yeah. as it could be. It's 72 <laughs> in the shade. I don't know what these liberals are making such a fuss about. You know, um, the like what it, it is really crazy. Apparently the Arctic Circle's air temperature, like up, up over like in the Russian Arctic Circle and Arizona's air temperature were the same last. I uh, saw you post that on the Twitter sphere. Yeah. Um, I think I liked it, but I liked it with the, I wish there was like a fear. I fear, <laughs> I want there to be an option on Twitter now, which is like, I fear this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that would be, that's probably appropriate for everything I post on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> but it was wild. I can't believe that. I didn't know it could get so hot there. I don't think it's supposed to. It's definitely not supposed to. Um, yeah, and like when this when it like heats up like that, the the permafrost releases methane gas. Yeah. Um, and just kind of like it permeates the atmosphere. Um, and it really probably releases like the alien technology that was dropped there thousands of years ago <laughs> and is now being thawed. Um, or you know, Captain America. Yep. Well, but I mean, that's a, the alien technology angle is something that we don't hear enough from climate change advocates. No. Because, you know, there is a definite like being in a sci-fi movie angle here. And part that, of us, and that, I mean, me and you, Sloan, part of us wants to build an info wars on the left here, you know, <laughs> so we can sell our, mostly so we can sell our sports drinks. Yeah. Yeah. And also those, uh, I mean, we talked last, last week about uh, the, the climate credits, you know. Um, yeah. And actually, you know, I don't know if we talked about this last week, but, you know, a common gardening product is actually one of the worst things you can have for climate change. Uh, peat moss oh. is in it is in every gardening product. Interesting. And it, it is the worst thing for the environment. Like it, it's nature's most efficient carbon sink. Um, the only way to get it out of the ground is to strip mine it. 
Um, and when you take it out of the ground, not only does it no longer sequester carbon, but it re-releases all that carbon into the atmosphere. Oh my goodness. I'm not yeah. using that stuff, people out there. Just so you know, my <laughs> personal garden has no peed moss, so I'm still waiting <laughs> for the contributions. So you can earn carbon credits. Yep, uh, yep, My yep. personal story before we get into the news, uh, Sloan, I was at a party yesterday. An Holy actual shit. human party. This is not like a party of dogs at the dog park. Uh, probably like a hundred people at a house in Woodside wow. with a food wow. truck. We were outside to, yep. but, but still, I don't think I saw a mask. Wow. What was it like? Were, did people like remember how to socialize? No, no, we didn't. <laughs> I, especially me. I kind of stood yep. by, I just stood and kind of like drank my Chardonnay until I was sufficiently Chardonnayed. Yep. Uh, and then I, and then I was very entertaining. I, I'm not sure, but um <laughs> It was wild. It does feel like, you know, you were in Phoenix. I was at a party. Maybe the pandemic's over? Question mm, mark? Yeah. I mean, like, it's it. people certainly are acting that way. I mean, like, the, the plane that I was on was full both ways. You know, wow. the um, people were pretty good about masks. But, you know, like, it's still the caution level is definitely down maybe to, like, light yellow, if not, you know, light green. I do hear New York is just going off right now. And it's, like, the coolest place on earth to be. It's pretty lit here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's Pride Week, which is always pretty lit here. Um, I just got off the phone with a friend who was like DJing until like 1.30 a.m. last night at an event. Um, That's awesome. And, you know, yeah. It's, you I mean, know hey, DJs. You got, I, <laughs> I know over one DJ. You yeah. know DJs. That's amazing. I don't know any <laughs> DJs. I mean, you know, stick with me, you know. On that bombshell, <laughs> shall I jump into the news? Yeah, do it. I got some good news. Well, no, actually, I have interesting news. <laughs> I have bad okay. news, but it's, it's interesting. Uh, first and foremost, um, Australian Sovereign Wealth Fund uh, CIO, Susan Brake, or Brackey, I'm not exactly mm -hmm. sure how to pronounce her last name, but she's um, out there saying that they are building up huge positions of cash, which is never hmm. a good Great that's sign. a great sign. Yeah. That's... Um, in a bid to be able to move quickly when markets get jittery over the inflation and how central mm. banks are going to react. So mm. you're seeing a lot of the asset owner community starting to say, look, this is getting a little toppy and inflation. We're seeing a lot of, you know, news out there about inflation. And so yep. now some of the smarter, biggest uh, sovereign funds are saying, look, we're, we're getting ready. I love that. That's cash as an option. I mean, like it really is like one of the cooler things in portfolio management. You can just not own something and then you have the ability to own something later. It's a beautiful option. I also find it interesting that normally when you're worried about inflation, the one thing you don't want to hold is cash. Is cash, yeah. And yet, <laughs> you know, so like they are next level ninjas because yep. like, look, for those of you out there that you know, are worried about inflation, don't take cash and put it under your mattress. That's like the worst yeah. thing you can do. They yeah, will I mean, invest that's, this cash. That's what yeah. the plan is. Yeah, exactly. Like a lot of retail investors will probably mimic that and then like forget to reallocate. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then, <laughs> and then they'll look back after hyperinflation and be like, oh no. Yeah. I mean, at least in hyperinflation, stock prices tend to go up. True. You know, get your, get your cash into stocks is what you should be doing. But what they're saying is interest rates will come up to prevent real inflation. And it's the interest rates rising that will force markets down. So that makes a lot of, there's been a lot of fear about that. I mean, the, the Fed is always saying 2022, 2022, we're going to be data dependent. 
which is kind of a conflict, right? You can't say you're data dependent and then say we're not doing it for another year. True. Like that doesn't make any sense. True. Um, but yeah, it's like a, it, it, it is the big fear all of a sudden, which honestly, great news for the economy. I mean, like the pretty much my whole time being cognizant of investment stuff, everyone's been like, inflation's going to come, inflation's going to come, inflation's yep. going to come. And it's never come. Yep. It's like um, the low return environment that we were worried about a decade ago. <laughs> like we get in this low return environment. It's going to be yeah. so hard to generate returns. Just go have a look at the last 10 years. Yeah. Pretty, some of the dankest returns yeah. there have been ever. Yeah. Dankest. I love it. <laughs> uh, so look that this feeds into my next story, which we could be breaking news right now. I want you to know <gasps> I'm coming to you live uh, with an anonymous source who tells me that large pension funds in America are being told by their, um, consultants and service providers that their capital market assumptions will be far lower this year than they've ever been, which hmm. means for those of us inside the baseball diamond, that their expected return numbers will be coming down, which means huh. their liabilities are going to go up, which means our yep. taxes could go up in certain states. So what Sick. does all this mean? When you're setting an expected return target, you go around and you collect a whole series of assumptions about what different markets will do in terms of performance. Equity markets in America, fixed income markets, real estate markets, private equity markets. And these consultants and service providers tell you, here's what you can expect. Then you bake that into an expected return for the entire portfolio. And ideally, if you're an American pension plan, you want that number to be near seven. Yep. Many people can't even get their CMAs to get to six, which means- that, I mean, that, that, that makes sense. It does make sense when you look at the world, right? But, <laughs> yeah. but I'm, I'm like getting hit by a lot of people in the industry that are like, Ashby, how do we carve out that extra 1%? to get from six to seven. And this is the moment I've been waiting for where I'm like, do something innovative. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, I've been waiting my life for this guys. moment. And, yeah, uh, exactly. and so we'll see, you know, I've got uh, Eminem playing in the background, uh, mom mm -hmm. spaghetti. Oh, stuff, what, what, what? you know, I mean, they must be reading the free money podcast blog. I mean, I like, you are. know, there was, we had a, uh, a post up there like a couple weeks ago about yeah, I mean, GMO, you know, I get, which I guess, you know, it is short for Grantham Mayo Von Otterloo and Von Otterloo and Company, but it should be like short for like Grumpy Man. I once I once interviewed uh, Grantham. Oh, he's such a cool guy. He's the coolest dude. We were on stage, and he the thing he freaked me out about is that the couch I'm sitting on is filling my body with chemicals I don't understand. <laughs> yep. And I was yeah, like, I mean this is the craziest conversation I've ever had. <laughs> I had no idea I had all these chemicals in my body. Yeah, I will. I mean, and they, the, their their latest CMA, like they're negative on everything except for uh, small cap internet emerging market stocks. Oh my which goodness! Like, who has a small cap emerging market sleeve operative in their Very portfolio? Few. Not the big yeah. guys. You can't do it. Yeah, you can't do it. Doesn't it's scale. Like, you know. Yeah, you can't you can't cut a, a big check there. All right, two quick bits of news. I think this mm. this news I'm about to say we got to come back to because I okay. I feel obligated to say the word DeFi on the free money podcast DeFi, DeFi, decentralized finance has taken mm, I, I can't mm -hmm. go 22 seconds without having somebody ask me my views on DeFi, <laughs> and i defy that DeFi trend um but here we are talking about it so yep. DeFi is decentralized finance and i just wanted to flag for people this is the new umbrella term 
for blockchain, crypto, mm-hmm. Bitcoin, and it is what people are starting to call the fintech 3.0. And I just wanted to play. Oh, it's a 3.0 now. Oh, we're wow. 3.0. Oh, you thought we were wow. 2.0? Oh, this is 3.0. This is DeFi. <laughs> so we got to come back to this slog. Okay, this yep. is a topic yep. for a future day. But now everybody out there knows when you're at the cocktail party, you know enough to be dangerous. Just say you're really excited about blockchain and you're tracking stable coins. Okay, that, you'll sound <laughs> well, like a champion in the DeFi chat. And you know, if anyone out there has somebody that they, you know they think would be an unbelievable genius for us to interview, hit us up. Oh yeah, I mean, like a, a suggestion is great. We've we got, you know, do our... need to do crowdsourcing of interview guests. Yeah, that's yeah, we genius. Should. And by the way, <laughs> like and subscribe. Oh yeah, like and subscribe. <laughs> uh, last piece of news comes to you from Korea. Um, Korea Investment Corporation just came out with its second annual sustainable investment report. And they reported that in the last year, they have invested $1.79 billion in ESG bonds. And uh, that sounds super exciting. That's a lot of money. Um, It's a lot of money and it sounds exciting. I don't know what ESG bonds are. Exactly. <laughs> um, I'm assuming it's like bonds that have some reporting requirements or yep. maybe it's like even impact metrics that they're tracking. Um, there's green bonds out there. There's even blue bonds um, yep. related to clean water. Um, I'm guessing that's what they're referring to. But it'd be great to get more information on that as well. Um, so funny you bring that up. Our Uh-oh. guest today, in a, in a pure coincidence, <laughs> in a pure coincidence, our guest today is Ulf Erlansson, uh, whose name I probably did not pronounce right, um, who heads the Anthropocene Fixed Income Institute out of Sweden. And, you know, Anthropocene, of course, being the, the name for the geological epoch that we now sit in, where the dominant force affecting climate and the environment is human behavior, right? Fascinating. Uh, so the you know the I'm really really excited to get him in here. Let's just go ahead and do it. Let's let's admit. Oof. Uh. Hi. How are you? Oh. Great, Ulf. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Where are we, we talking, just talking to you right now? Uh, you're talking to me in Stockholm. Uh, where are you? You both in New York, right? No, I'm in California. This is the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus. So I got the Bay Area. <laughs> I got the Bay Area side of things. All right. Um, how is there. how is Stockholm right now? Are you on one of the many islands? Um, yeah, I am actually. I'm, I'm sitting in Old Town, so it's like okay. in the 15th century and stuff. Uh, oh, I where, love that. Whereabouts in California are you? Uh, this is a little town called Los Gatos. Which okay. is uh, cats. south of the cats. Yeah, it's the cats for those in the know, <laughs> uh, and it's south of Stanford University, where where I'm on research faculty. So, um, yeah, it's nice. I, I, but we were yeah, just we it, were just it, talking it, about it, fixed income yeah. and the need to like unravel some of the stuff I think you've been working on, um, and it, it's just awesome to have you here. Yeah, and well, I mean, I think the the best place to start. You were like roasting a transaction that Saudi Aramco did recently, the last time we, when we chatted last week. Um, and you know, they they did a sale and leaseback of some pipeline assets that I you know I, I know you know some some pension funds you know bought into. Shame, shame. Um, maybe can you take us inside that um, and kind of it, the absurdity <laughs> of it? 
Yeah, I mean, let's start with the basics of this thing. Um, it's big, right? It's between 10 and 12, uh, 12 and a half million US dollars, which makes it bigger than even, you know, uh, Saudi Aramco's uh, bond issuances that they've done historically. Um, so it's a, it's a big transaction. Um, the money is essentially uh, being used to pay dividends to, you know, the kingdom, uh, MBS, etc. So you know, 98% owned. Uh, ownership of the company so and when they're not generating enough cash flow they need to pay money to the kingdom anyhow so that's that's essentially the background for this one so what's happening is the fact that the ramco has all of these pipelines within saudi arabia and they're saying that you know okay what about if we offload these from our balance sheet for a while get some cash and then we get them back after you know a couple of decades or so so this action is structured essentially as a lease and lease back but the investors more or less, they buy the pipelines for a duration of 25 years, uh, and then uh, they get paid tariffs by Aramco for using the pipelines. And then uh, uh, after 25 years, they actually uh, give it back to Aramco. So that's, that's the basics of the transaction, the credit side of it. Then the financial engineering around this is pretty, pretty interesting, <laughs> right? Um, so there's lots of different counterparties uh, working with this. The main buyer that came out for this is uh, a firm called EIG, which is a, a US-based, Washington-based um, investment firm uh, with lots of sort of connections in, into institutional money, even um, US pension funds, et cetera. Um, it's interesting because they you know, finished the transaction. Other big guys like BlackRock, uh, Brookfield stepped out of it uh, earlier on. So, you know, I'm not going to tell why they did that, um, but it isn't a particularly popular um, uh, exposure to have in the days of ESG, etc. Yeah, yeah, and and the collateral of pipelines in Saudi Arabia, I mean, sounds like it's really easy to seize in the event of an issue. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you uh, get, sounds like <laughs> you get sounds like that's not one of uh, KIC's ESG bonds that they're holding. <laughs> Well, it, it, it sounds like one of those, if you go there and try to seize the assets, you're going to get yourself a hotel room at the Ritz for an extended period of time. Your embassy and sort of reclaim it as well. Uh, and, you know, that's half joking, half serious. It's, it's, it's a big thing in credit, right? If you're doing something which is asset back, can you seize the collateral? And you know, I'd be, put uh, pretty uh, substantial question marks around that in this transaction. Yeah. Yeah, and, and obviously the you know the misalignment with the stated ESG mandates of many pensions is pretty you know pretty fun. I mean, I, I, you know, we're talking about a fossil fuel pipeline for the next twenty five years. You know, that's that's a while. Well, I mean, to be fair, uh, twenty forty five is within the realm of net zero and twenty fifty. <laughs> so if you're a bank like HSBC, for example, promising their shareholders net zero by twenty fifty, well, this is good. Uh, this works, yeah. yeah, because this yep. is going to be off uh, after that one. Now, there, there's been some even more interesting developments uh, on on this thing. So, um, Bloomberg reported, and this is you know from uh, uh, third party sources. So, I want to get it described to myself. But uh, apparently, there was a swap transaction involved. So, essentially, they swap uh, the floating versus the fixed interest rate in this transaction. And uh, JP Morgan walked out with a cool $100 million of P&L on the back of that transaction. Just Well, they haven't monetized it uh, as of yet, but that's the P&L they made just in like the first couple of months on this one. And they were the sole bank on that uh, swap transaction, which is 
Interesting to say, and I, I'm, I'm not blaming them. They're a bank. They're supposed to make, ma make money. I, I guess the EIG guys should be uh, a little bit considerate about who gave them the advice uh, with regards to getting into that swap because they lost the money. Um, mm. Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, speaking of yield, right? Like, I mean, there's, I, I think a lot of the reason that people would get interested in a transaction like this is because of the potential for like a yield pickup, right? I mean, there's, uh, you know, they pay higher coupon rates off, off in these fossil fuel uh, transactions. Um, but you sort of explained that it kind of evaporates under a little bit of scrutiny and with a little bit of creative financial engineering. Can you, can you sort of take us inside that a little bit? Well, it's, it's uh, pretty back to, down to basics of, of uh, credit pricing and credit analysis, right? What we're trading is really you know, some sort of interest rate risk, and then we're trading default risk. So the, the probability that I will not get my money repaid. Now, what's happening right now is that a lot of companies, well, you'd say Exxon or Aramco or, you know, some of the big fossil guys, they have very high credit ratings right now uh, because they are not a big credit risk within the next five years. And that is essentially how far the, the, the perspective of the rating agencies go. Now, when you go out to the 10-year point, if you're comparing a double A-rated bond with another double A-rated bond, well it's actually the market is starting to price in other types of default risk, underlying default risks uh, in there, which might not be reflected in the credit rating because credit ratings are trying to predict defaults. But there might be divergency, especially, uh, divergences. And especially when you start talking about like a 10-year horizon, you know, uh, a lot of stuff's going to happen on, with climate change. And for a company that hasn't transitioned its business model, tentatively, you know, the default risk will be higher in 10 years. And, and that's, that's not a risk-free arbitrage. It's you buying one risk that, well, you think it's mispriced, but the rest of the market might not think of it. And then bring on mm -hmm. the flow factor. I mean, if we, you know, if, if, if we get to tail risk scenario, let's say you get 115 degrees Fahrenheit temperatures to California and people start saying, yeah, we're not going to invest in fossils anymore. Um, and the market has some sort of event that makes it now go negative. Well, the liquidity factor in some of those fossil risk-related bonds is going to be is going to be impaired, I think, and that needs to be priced in as well. So you pick mm. up, you know, there isn't a thing as a you know uh, as as a free lunch unless you're a mark, well, hold to maturity investor, and if you're that, we can have that discussion outside in the back alley. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, where, where you will get spanked, probably, and hopefully. <laughs> uh, those, those 150 degree temperatures in California, by the way, not theoretical. Uh, that happened last week in Palm Springs. I, I am reading up uh, my case. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, know, and, you know, I guess the, the thing that's really interesting about this, you know, as a, as a sort of venue for ESG engagement, of course, is that fixed income is a primary market, right? Like, these transactions are between issuers and lenders, and you know, the company actually is directly affected by the nature of the transaction. Um, how does that sort of change the, the tools and tactics that you use in activist engagements? Well, it's very clear, right? Because if you're engaging in a primary market activity, you're shifting a basic supply and demand equation. And once you start shifting that, if a big investor pulls out of some certain fossil deals, well, there's less demand to buy those bonds and you have to readjust the price i.e. the yield needs to be to be going up in order to compensate investors. Another way around, if you're sort of helping out in a primary market transactions, that's you know, decreasing the yield, decreasing the cost of capital. 
But the cool thing here is that it actually gets translated straight into the cash flow of uh, the, the fossil sort of projects in some sense. So if all the banks help out Saudi Aramco on this transaction, so they actually get the lower yield on their borrowing that they're effectively making on, on the back of this uh, leaseback operation, well, that means that you know they're paying less money. They're paying less bills by the end of the month or by the end of the quarter in this case. Um, and, and hence, everything which is engaging to sort of supply finance to the fossil fuel sector in the primary market, it's not a victim of this, you know, one seller is another buyer uh, type of thing. Mm. It's actually shifting the basic fundamental uh, supply and demand equations. That's, it's really interesting to hear about these dynamics. I think one of the things we spend a ton of time on the free money podcast thinking about are, are the pension and sovereign fund, the, the, just the giant asset owner investors in the space and, and the influence that they can kind of have over this broader market. It's our kind of working assumption that these are big long-term investors, so they should care about these issues. But also they have stakeholders that just are kind of inherently interested in living on the earth for a long time. Um, what, like in your expert opinion, like what sort of role do pension funds and sovereign wealth funds play in this, in this broader market? And could we be kind of helping them become better ESG advocates in this space? I mean, they play a huge role, especially in fixed income, which is sort of clubby. You don't have a, a gazillion retail investors. You have a couple of big guys. Um, I, I jokingly say that, you know, no one who matters in fixed income does not have a Bloomberg terminal. Don't get me wrong with that. That's not like a, a marketing statement or anything, but essentially that says that, you know. They all have one. Yeah. Is, well, yeah, they, double they, negative. They yeah, okay. They're doing it too, right? <laughs> Otherwise, they can't transact in that market, which limits the number of Bloomberg terminals across the world. So that was like 25K. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's a limited set of people who can actually engage in this. Now, we did a thing, a pretty cool thing back in November, actually, with the, you know, the, the NGO I represented, where um, it was a big case where an Indian bank called State Bank of India was going to give a massive six, uh, $70 million loan to the, you know, a company that was going to build a big uh, uh, coal mine in Australia. And um, because I tend to come from you know, the institutional investor side, I called some of uh, the people I know there and said, hey, guys, you invested in the green bonds from this State Bank of India place. Now, you need to call them and say, we cannot accept that you're actually doing this transaction. Um, and you know the thing is, they get an audience with State Bank of India Treasury, or it's almost like the reverse, uh, re reverse way. The treasurers at State Bank of India, they got you know, overwhelmed with like calls from like sort of semi-big guys to begin with, but then you had like the Norwegian Oil Fund, you had BlackRock, you had store brand. You had a couple of the big guys calling in and saying, "Yeah, don't, don't do that loan." Um, and by the end of the day, they decided, "Yeah, we're not going to do it. It's not worth Amazing. alienating our investor base on the fixed income side uh, in order to just give, you know, give this sort of semi-political favor." So it is, My gosh, it's, it's cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that is. It's it's like almost gives me optimism um, <laughs> that, that like these that organizations. Far, okay? Yeah, let's not. Okay, uh, I, yeah. if I if see optimism in my future. Yeah. Today, we're looking at the market event where Enbridge, you know, Pipeline 3, mm. uh, Canadian Tar Sands, all of that, they're looking to do their first sustainable, uh, sustainability-linked bond uh, in the market, which, um, well, let's say yeah. we have a certain queasiness around that. 
Yeah, you're, I saw your note uh, about that. I mean, the, the, this, you know, imagine the audacity of putting out a bond like that, where you've basically already met the targets, and they're and they're both irrelevant and self-reported. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm I'm with that. The, the audacity. That's that's exactly you know. I'm I, I think I'm pretty scarred from a career in bond trading, but some of the comes out. I mean, this is like. <laughs> but let's talk for a second about these sustainability bonds like we, we've already talked on the show about green bonds blue bonds and and i know even um some of the big pensions and sovereign funds are issuers of these bonds canada pension plan i think did a green bond at one point over the last few years um what do you feel like this is a, a market that's going to scale is this is this the pathway to really build green exposures the green bond space or do you have some other kind of ideas on how we can help these big investors get access to sustainable fixed income? I think we're already seeing it happen. I mean, the fact that Enbridge is trying to do it, uh, although not very well, uh, <laughs> poorly advised by their banks, I must say as well, um, is saying something that people are trying to tap into this sort of pool of interest, etc. Uh, so that's, that's an important dimension. Now, a factor I think is really crucial, and this is really where I come from, because I did a lot of green bonds, but I didn't start out there. And the reason that you know the franchise I was running back at AP4 became big in green bonds was the fact that I didn't pigeonhole them. So you know, to quote uh, uh, Patrick Swayze in that great movie, you know, nobody puts green bonds in the in the corner. Um, <laughs> paraphrase it. Sorry. Love it. No, that's great. We love Patrick Swayze on the program. He <laughs> doesn't, right? Um, and this is going to slightly older generation listening to this, I presume. Um, the assumers won't get it. Uh, but, but anyhow, the, the, the fact that, you know, once you get the green bonds, the sustainability link bonds into the traditional mainstream bond portfolios, that's where you hit the wow moment where like you can shift in. It's not going to be your pigeonhole. I can take $1 million positions. It's going to be, okay, I'm switching out of this bond where I have a $50 million exposure and I want to look to you know, get that same type of exposure uh, when I'm switching into this, uh, you know, the green bond of the same issuer. That's, that's really when it, when it hits home. But there's, a, there, there's just like such a powerful incentive as well that where we, like, through the green bonds, we're getting like the DNA of sustainability into the thinking of the treasury function of the issuers. They start thinking about like, you know, environmental KPIs and stuff. They never cared about that before. I mean, it was like in the environmental ESG group, the, the sort of elephant's graveyard, that was the way it used to be in Scandinavia. And I think it, it is in a lot of places. And, and it suddenly becomes like a trading thing. It becomes like a markets thing. Uh, and and you, can't, you can't sort of retract that. It's, it's just going to keep on rolling. That's a good, that ties right into like a very kind of uh, recurring free money theme, which is like, you know, these innovation thing, like these innovative silos wind up having really broad effects on the broader organization, um, you know, beyond just like the issuance of one bond. And I think you nailed it by saying that the objective here is to move these ESG indicators into the core um, traditional financial risk teams. And, and once you can, can kind of integrate the, the data, the risk and the ESG around a single strategy, then you really actually start to move capital markets. Um, I'd never heard the elephant's graveyard uh, analogy before, but we see it here um, and really around the world where you know the ESG teams are kind of often relegated sitting in a different zip code from, from the investment teams. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a local example. Um, so, for example, we did note a little while back where uh, looking at just like the biggest flarer of the Permian Basin, so you know, a company called Ameridev, um, owned by private equity. And who are the investors in the private equity? Well, the biggest one in that fund, which actually invested in Ameridev, is uh, Cal STRS. Um, and that's that's not on the package of their ESG group definitions. Also, so there 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 becomes there, there's a, a movement now where not taking care of these things that becomes like a reputational, like a business risk. It's not only about you know, making you look good in the sustainability report. There's going to be some some pretty nice people personally, but when they come to prof professional uh, uh, role, they might be slightly nasty. Who's going to challenge you on that? I'm going to tell you, you know, your fixed in income book looks like it's very tilted to you know, some of the stuff that you're saying that you're against. How does that come? Uh, and mm. uh, that's people should hedge themselves from that, I think. Mm. You know, there, there's a very like interesting lesson because, you know, I know that there are people listening to this podcast who, you know, either are on their way to a desk at one of these pension funds or are sitting at a desk at one of these pension funds. Um, and, you know, you mentioned like the pigeonholing of green bonds. Um, and, you know, by not put, holding yourself out as a green bonds person, you were able to, to do more in that space. I wonder what advice would you have for, you know, the kind of you 10 years ago that might be sitting in these in these spaces right now? Um, the advice I would do, and this is uh, from being smart and being the biggest sort of climate impact uh, thing you want to do as well, is to look at your portfolio. Don't get involved and, and think too much about the green bonds. Buy some of them. Yeah, that's it's it's pretty much the same. But look at the baddies in your portfolio, the ones where the names aren't you know smelling fresh, uh, because that's what's gonna come and bite you. Um, we uh, pushed the Danish pension fund called PFA uh, with regards to their exposures to you know being the third biggest lender to the province of Alberta. In, uh, in various currencies. And Alberta uses that money to subsidize uh, oil sands industry. And that doesn't look good for their end pensioners. And they have to change that. And it's like, it's like manage your career risk, man. Uh, don't, don't, <laughs> why should you own something for a few basis points more, which isn't even like a risk arbitrage, if it's going to lose your, your job? I mean, we're a conservative industry. And no... <laughs> A lot of us will be sort of career risk focused and owning deep fossil risks right now. That's that's career risk. So it's just like <laughs> I love how you like flipped the career risk around. In it's now playing in our favor. It's like a judo move on career risk. It used to be that people, you know, they they viewed their career risk as being oh well I should I just need to invest in all the private equity funds because that's what all my partners are doing or my peers are doing. And now it sounds like what you're saying is actually the career risk is um, just doing the status quo. If you keep doing the status quo, like you're just, there's a creeping career risk coming along. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, that's it. Like if you stay still, you're at risk. You have to be in motion. And where is the secular trend going? Well, it's not going towards leveraging up on fossil uh, assets. So start moving along with that secular trend. Be ahead of the curve rather than behind the curve because that tends to be a pretty good PL trade. Uh, and you know, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room, just look at the trend, right? And uh, don't own assets that you would be queasy about telling your kids that you know, I you know, lowered the cost of capital for this coal mine or this you know, uh, oil sand in situ site or whatever. 
Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, and you know, folks who, who want to hear from one of the smarter, smarter guys in the room should make sure and check you out at AFII.org. Um, great email list that is pr pretty active and, you know, um, thank you so much for, for hopping on the pod. I know that there is a, uh, a, a Euro cup game, uh, that is of the utmost importance right now. Sweet. Who's Sweden playing? Sweden is playing Poland. So it's, it's essentially renewables versus coal here. So it's <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's hey. hilarious. Well, thanks. Ulf. Really appreciate it. Thank awesome you. insight. Thanks so Thank much. you for having me. Thank you. What a great, uh, insight. I mean, I just, I love how he just inverts a lot of the conventional thinking um and i love it you know, too there's, there's a clarity that fixed income analysts have about stuff that i find really enviable um you know because like whenever you talk to equity people it's jazz hands and and honeybees and happiness you know and like hopes for the future um but on the credit sp space you're talking about you know pinching a basis point here a basis point there and that's your that's the that's the, the ball game yeah you know, well you gotta go deep into the analysis you know on on one you know, the upside is endless. And on the other, the downside is endless. So equity people are notoriously optimistic and fixed income people <laughs> are notoriously pessimistic, right? That's the stereotype. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I love his, if you stay still, you're at risk comment, because yeah. that does, that does like resonate because that's that fixed income, you know, he's constantly looking for the risks in a fixed income product, but it's also applies to the career and the individual. And so, you know, he's realized that like the world is moving around these folks and they got to do something. So it's a fabulous guest. I didn't realize he, I probably should have known this. I didn't realize he had been at AP4. I probably should have told you that. <laughs> You I was know, just reading all of his blogs ahead of time, but you know, <laughs> and I thought those were, I love it. I was calling out Calsters. Uh, for... Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's a real broadening of our, of our, you know, historical trolling of, of the California based large pension funds. I mean, like historically it's been very CalPERS oriented. Yeah, no, we gotta, <laughs> we definitely got to bring in Calsters from time to time. Um, yeah. That was fabulous. Yeah. But you know exactly what time it is. Mm. Um, it is time for Dear Ashby. This is the segment where, uh, if you're following along at home, we answer your questions. Um, and, you know, ask them um, if you have them. Um, send us an email at freemoneypod at gmail.com. You can also hop on freemoneypodcast.com. Uh, and, and there's a form on there that allegedly works, but none of you are using it. We have a website uh, and an email address. I know. Very it's very efficient. It's very efficient and the logo and everything. It's beautiful. Uh, the first, the first uh, question comes from someone who seems to have been hanging out on like you know Wall Street bets forums <laughs> or something like that. Um, I think we probably introduced them to Wall Street bets forum. That may have been <laughs> our fault. I, can you imagine? Yeah, like you know, people are out here trying to ape Liz's investment strategy. That's right. <laughs> like, Liz, how do you like, do oh, research? Okay. I don't. I buy the longest one. <laughs> yeah, the, that was it. That was I literally her advice was to see the page count on the research and then yeah, back that. I mean, hey, you know, it's a strategy. It you is. Say whatever you want. Um, All right, what do we got? This one is, you know, relatively short in page count. Um, you know, I see lots of charts with lines and bars on them, which purport to say something interesting. Um, should I learn how to read them? Oh, I think they're talking about technical analysis. Fantastic here. question. Going back to like. Everybody who's ever taken an investment class has been warned not to believe the, you know, what's going on in the technical analysis. 
But there's an interesting, you know, take here, which is that technical analysis is really the predecessor of quantitative investing. Mm, um, and, mm-hmm. and like, you know, if you go back 50 years, the quants were doing technical analysis. They were just studying the heads and the shoulders and, you know, like all the different types of trends, basically, that you see in pricing. The point yep. of the technical analysis is that it's devoid of understanding of the company. Right. So you're really looking for price and market interaction and trying to extract some insight around future price. And it turns out from quants, um, we know that there is actually predictive capacity in just prices, price movements. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. you can start to predict regime changes and those regime changes can drive momentum and momentum then builds more, you know, price movements. So. All that is to say, I think there is something there that's interesting, but it also is like, you know, what leeches are to healthcare. Um, <laughs> you know, technical analysis is to quantitative investing. And so yeah. just think about how often you would use leeches to, to, to solve problems or frankly, astrology instead of astronomy. Hey, that's uh, that's queerphobic, Ashby. You can't you can't talk shit about us. I can't. This, uh, I, I, this sincere climate. apologies. <laughs> sincere apologies. Um, I mean, but it is cool. It's like they're an attempt to piece out private information from public information, right? Like, as you can see, like you know, prices where people are accumulating, yeah. prices where people are selling. You know, um, there's not nothing to it, but there's much less to it than people make out. Yeah, to and me. there's much more you can do than technical. Like if you're really interested in the foundations of technical analysis, which is price movements, um, then, you know, build some algorithms instead of learning how to chart. Um, I would say learn how to do quantitative analysis. There you go. Yep. Yep. All right. That's a good, that's a good answer. Um, here's, I mean, I guess this is a DeFi related question. Uh, although we didn't, we do not have that hashtag in the question. Um, the, the, uh, listener asks cryptocurrencies in aggregate went from about five, uh, about half of 1% to, uh, almost 4% of the Wilshire 5,000 market cap during the pandemic. What would Jack Bogle say? Part of me thinks he's rolling over in a grave somewhere, but, yep. um, he'd probably say, let's build a diversified set of exposures to these things and package them up in an index fund and allow you to participate in the growth of the market without taking the idiosyncratic risk of any single coin or cryptocurrency. Yep. Yep. Um, I think what, what Jack, you know, the big invention for him was passive investing and the ability to participate in the growth of markets. And so he might say, what an interesting market, you know, yeah. if you really do believe in DeFi and FinTech 3.0, um, you know, why not build some passive exposure? And, Frankly, does that exist yet? Is there a mm. kind of ETF out there that we can buy that will give us access to, you know, 30, 40, 50 um, different cryptocurrencies? I don't know. Hmm. I, yeah, I mean, I think that there are some exchange traded notes, but they tend to trade um, above, at, at a premium or a discount to uh, the underlying because ah. you know, they, you know, it's, it's kind of that old thing where it's like a basket of futures or whatever, and there's all kinds of arbitrage that's happening yeah. around it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it also is funny to think about this because, you know, Jack Bogle, of course, had a long career. Um, and in the early part of his career, he was like a go-go fund manager, uh, in the sixties. And he was like out here hyping all of the stuff, like, 
you know, National Cash Register and all the growth stocks of that era. Was he really? Uh, huh? Yeah. So like, I mean, yeah, that's actually what, what, I mean, like he, he wrote a thesis on, um, you know, for listeners, I, I got to interview Jack Bogle at my old gig. It was really cool. That is cool. Um, but the, like the, he, uh, got really, really into all this stuff and then he got burnt terribly. Um, and that's what kind of led him to create this, uh, you know, what they called Bogle's folly at the time. Hmm. Anyway, uh, the last question here we go um and this one comes from me uh okay i know active management is a cursed undertaking but i can't find any existing funds that align well with my values is it insane to start a new one uh oh, that's hilarious all right so i'll, t- I'll tone down my messaging now that i know <laughs> it's, it's from crazy. you you lunatic well we're claire and i are like we, we've started looking at our stuff and we're like, there must be some ESG fund out there that will like, you know, do veganism and do oh, interesting. like, yeah, the, the, like, and you know, it's just, I'm not finding a thing. I'm finding like lots of people who are willing to sell me like Microsoft ESG funds. Uh, you know, where it's just like, Oh, Facebook is our top holding. It's great. They don't emit any carbon. You know, so, um, okay. So I'm literally on the fly. I'm going to change my answer a little bit, which is I'm going to do a live. Okay. Uh, oh, the, the answer here is um, it is such a crowded field that it feels yeah. like there should be stuff. Yeah. But actually, you're right to point out that when you dig into the entire ecosystem, the ESG, you know, world of investment opportunities feels pretty homogenous. Yep. And it's like the same damn, you know, public equity products just like being powered by different data providers. We did have a guest on the show not long ago, um, Jay Lipman from Ethic, yeah, which is um, a fund manager that purports to allow you or allow your RIA. So it's not, you know, you have to have an RIA, registered investment advisor. Um, it's not a direct to consumer offering, but they do purport to allow RIAs to help their customers invest with their, wait for it, ethics. And it can be tailored. So that, mm. the neat part about their technology is you're like, I care about guns um, and I care about fossil fuels. Well, you can get rid of them in your portfolio and then they can build an index that has the same tracking error and risk as the, as the, as the sort of standard benchmarks. There's a few companies like that emerging. Um, not enough of them are direct to consumer, which is the problem. And so you're out there mm-hmm. looking around for standard ETFs that are you know, yeah. matching your um, objectives. That's really hard. That's really hard yeah, to find. Yeah, I just want an iShare. I want an iShares fund that I can pay fifty basis points for that will like simply not involve animal cru- cruelty. Yeah, uh, but this <laughs> is. Know, and- I mean, this will become mass customization, right? Where yeah. we yeah. all get the chance to say, actually, this is what I care about, but I don't want to yep. go through the process of freaking building my own index. And it's insane. So somebody needs to come along and say, here is the tailored index just for you. Yep. And that's probably a startup project rather than a, you know, a mainstream asset management project. So that's where I would yep. look going that's forward. Pr- that's probably right. Yeah. Maybe you should get coffee with Jay. Um, <laughs> yeah. See what's up. Uh, yeah. The, uh, they're based in New York. Um, but yeah, that's, that does it for today. I mean, what an episode. What a fantastic episode. Yeah. I mean, I, like if you're listening and you haven't already uh, subscribed and liked and shared and whatever, I just I just don't know what to do for you. Yeah. Not just like. I mean. Five star. Five star. Yeah. yeah you know, we're up to eight five star reviews. Wow. Now, so these constant requests really the are. The begging. Are, the begging. Yeah. Are uh, <laughs> having an effect. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, every you know, time the, the little... we ask, we get one quarter of a rating. That's true. That's true. Yeah, you know, me doing puppy dog eyes at the top of the, <laughs> at the top of these podcasts. <laughs> Hello, please. please. <laughs> anyway, bye. Bye. That was awesome. <laughs>